Uh, which Corinthians is, if nothing else, very practical when it comes to church life, and, and not just church life, but it speaks to our personal lives as well. But a lot of these things, like today the subject will be uh, dealing with gross sins in the church, which is another way of saying dealing with church discipline. And if our hearts are not right, if Christ is not uh, right for us, we'll have a very difficult time with church discipline because it is a unpleasant subject. There's not a pastor alive, I don't think, at least I hope not, that enjoys it. Uh, and it is what it is. But if we love Christ, we'll be able to deal with these things. Last week, though, we uh, finished up chapter 4. We saw the church triumphant is in heaven in a glorified state enjoying the Lord without sin. Triumphalism is thinking that we should be enjoying glory now and not eternity. That, that we uh, should have things, God's blessings upon us in ways that really aren't uh, for the now. One way this is seen with those who believe in sinless perfection. You can understand that, right? You think that we should be able to uh, rise above sin in this life. And a lot of damage has been done in that area. Or that Christians can have healing, money, and respect in this life if they live good enough or have enough faith. And, and these are things that uh, they are have taken things that Christ has provided, will provide for us, and have tried to bring them into the here and now. And that just causes a lot of things, a lot of harm in our and part of the reason we fall for these things is because we are born legalists, and we talked a little bit about that. We think that if we behave well, God will give us things. We'll, we'll, we can have all this now. And if we're bad boys and girls, God will take them away. It's, it's very difficult for us to just live by grace, to understand that we don't deserve anything but hell, and if God gives us good things, we are to be thankful but that, that he will also take us through the valleys, through the valley of the shadow of death, and, and that that's part of, of molding us into what he wants us to be. Bliss and perfect happiness and sinlessness is something that we look forward to. And so, though, because of our legalism, we, we lower God's standards so that we are capable of being good enough to get God's blessings, when, a, when, a, when in reality we can't, we're not capable of living good enough to to earn anything in this life. So we don't want to live by grace and accept all things from His hands without murmuring, but instead use them as tools to serve to serve Him and serve the church. Those are, that that is difficult to live like that. Those, those are some of the things that we dealt with last week. So today, Paul turns his attention to, and, and this is not really changing the subject so much as they are arrogant. They have rejected Paul, that they feel like they have been elevated, that they're doing well. Paul is not doing well. He, he's not a good speaker. The Lord doesn't seem to be blessing him openly. So they feel like in some way they're doing better than Paul, and they have arrived in some way. And Paul just in, in a couple of verses says, Oh, by the way, you arrogant bunch of jerks. That's what he says, right? In verse 2. You, in all your arrogance, thinking that you're doing so well, you're allowing people to uh, live in gross immorality in your church. 
maybe not haven't arrived to the point that you think you have. And so this is overall brought in, I think, to point out their problem, but of course it gives us an opportunity to deal with an important subject. So I'm entitled the message uh, dealing with the gross sins of the church uh, because there is a difference in the way we treat the remaining effects of sin with each other. We're all sinners in the church. We all sin every day and in all things in some way or another. And we, yet we're not, we don't discipline everybody for everything, right? There are certain, and we'll talk about the parameters of what, when church discipline, removing somebody from the church, perhaps takes, uh, when that must be done. Um, while our goal is to eradicate all sin from our lives, obviously we can't remove all sinners from the church, right? For obvious reasons. But clearly we are to assume and hold ourselves accountable that we can refrain from certain outward public acts of sin which are not to be tolerated in the local church setting and therefore not to be tolerated in our lives. Now there's one thing to remember is that there are differences in sin. Not all sins are the same. Now before God, all sin is sin in that in the sense. But living in, in immorality Practicing adultery, for instance, in this particular case, is worse than perhaps, uh, you know, saying a swear word or, you know, think of something that we, you know, anger, you know, losing our temper or having a grudge against somebody. Those are bad. They dishonor the Lord. But there's differences. There are some sins that cannot be tolerated. There are some sins, I think the Lord then assumes that uh, he can that he assumes anything. He knows all things. But we can assume that there are certain acts, certain sins, for instance here, adultery, that we have no excuse to commit. And if we commit them, there are consequences to them that go beyond just maybe ordinary indwelling sin. So again, you have to assume these things, otherwise we wouldn't be able to practice any of it. So what we will see is that we are to assume that we are to live as those who hate sin and not as those who don't seem to be bothered by it. And the differences, I think, are generally obvious in, in, in most cases. In other words, we're not, we're not teaching sinless perfection, but we're saying that there are some things that just Christians should, have, should not tolerate, not in others, but in ourselves as well. And we have the capability as new creations to not do certain things. And if we do them, there is to be consequences, hopefully to repent and to, to stop doing them, right? And so Paul sets forth what kind of sinfulness he says church discipline is to be concerned with. And we notice here in this example, he gives us a good example. This is a blatant disregard for laws of God, for holiness on any level, and what this guy is doing. So we do not have, as a church, the authority to start demanding more of the membership than Christ does. In other words, there are, I'll talk about this in a moment, there are certain things that we are to practice church discipline over, but we are not to say, well, We'll create our own little list of things that we think are right and wrong, and we'll, 
If you don't follow our little list, then we will practice church discipline that. We always got to be careful of being holier than God, of setting standards beyond what God has set. And so we want to be careful there. The Lord here, Paul certainly isn't demanding perfection, but neither is he allowing certain sins to be, have no consequences. And obviously all this means very clearly that it is possible and expected that Christians overall live godly lives and not be dominated by worldliness. There are a lot of people, if you say that, make that claim, they'll say, well, that's legalism. Uh, we're all sinners. But you know, uh, that excuse, like I said before, there are differences in sin. If someone's committed adultery and you call them on it, the proper response is not, well, you sin. Well, none of us are perfect. Well, that, yeah, that's got nothing to do with the fact you shouldn't be doing that. So, Again, these are things to keep in mind. So let me say from the onset that there are uh, two things that are obvious from our text. Now I've got three here. I should have I should have put a bullet point there and did That's not number three. There's two things here though that are that must be assumed. I think are obvious from our text. Christians are expected to maintain a certain level of morality, which we talked about. Secondly, the church is expected to excommunicate those who won't behave as a Christian and who refuses to repent. Now, there's a lot of things about or about church discipline that we're not going to cover today. Church discipline isn't just about putting people out of the church. And that's sometimes perhaps why some people, that's all they think about. Church discipline involves going to people and, 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 and pleading with them to repent and pressing upon them the, the claims of Christ, of restoring them to where they should be, of eradicating dangerous and harmful sin out of their life. Church discipline is a very positive thing. Removing some someone from the membership is the last resort, as we'll, as we'll see here, is turning them over to Satan to be destroyed in the flesh. It's It's not what we want. It's not our goal. It's a consequence of unrepentance. So uh, we want to remember that as well. Um, there are many so-called Christians that refuse to obey either of these things and charge us with legalism and being involved, uh, unloving, excuse me, if we obey the Lord in these points. It's it's a ludicrous and ungodly statement to say that you're unloving when you practice church discipline when the Lord, through Paul, tells us to get rid of this person who's practicing this sin. I, I can't be more... The Lord is not more unloving than we are. But it seems to be the case. You know, if, if I'm unloving, then evidently the Lord is unloving. And no! The Lord loves with perfect love, and yet he says someone who professes to be my child who will not live in accordance to that uh, is got to be removed from the fellowship of the church. So again, uh, we will not set standards differently than the Lord has. So refusing to do the hard things that brings God's judgment, in other words, well, we don't, we will we will, we will not refuse to do the hard things 
uh, such as church discipline, because that just brings God's judgment upon us all. Let me also point out that there are three reasons for discipline. And, uh, it goes back to what I said, that we don't just discipline for every sin. Again, we'd all be gone. Uh, the, 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 if we read the scriptures, there are three main reasons why you practice discipline. Gross uh, sin, as we see here. Serious heresy, that is, you know, the word heresy means to divide. Doctrines that uh, are dishonoring to the Lord, that are too important, that just divide the church, and of course, divisions as well, which often some of these things can all be uh, layered together. But those are the three things. So someone living in gross, open sin, serious heresies, and causing divisions in the church. So it's not just every and anything, but it, it's certain things. And I think as we get into it, uh, you know, these are things that it's not that difficult to ascertain whether it's one of these things or not. And those are things that we don't have time to get into today. But uh, just keep that in mind. Because of all of this, this message is a difficult one, but it's also a serious one. And no one. You know, I don't like to talk about church discipline. Certainly not excommunication and all that kind of stuff. It's an unpleasant subject. Any more than I like to just sit around and talk about disciplining my children. You know, when I was raising them, I didn't like to spank them. I didn't like to do those things. But I, I knew that it was too important to, to not do it at all, right? So many, because of the difficulty, refused to... Uh, judge as the Bible demands us to do. We, we, we excuse ourselves by saying, well, I don't want to judge somebody else. Well, the, the Bible's already done that in this case, right? The Bible's already said this is wrong. Here's the consequences. So it's not like you've just decided to judge somebody. We can certainly do that. But we're just following what the, the Lord tells us to do. And as we'll see here, there are good and necessary reasons to do this. There is no command of God that is not positive and uplifting and good if we just pull what the Bible speaks for itself. Obviously, this subject is very unpopular in an affirming culture. When we're, when churches are affirming people's rebellion and, and sin, even gross sins, you come along and say, oh, by the way, the Lord says that when people are committing these sins that he lists here in the next chapter, they're to be removed from the church. You've got people on their billboards affirming, saying we accept everybody no matter what sin you're involved in. Well, it can't be both. And so they're welcoming open, gross sins into the church, and they go from ignoring sin to welcoming sin. You know, so it's it's amazing how needful this text is, and yet how it is being ignored. First of all, in our text, though, we see that there is a need for discipline. From the start, we see that this is not a matter of seeing some weakness, some pet sin in somebody. That, well, I don't like, you know, and it's easy for, and I've, you know, seen churches, pastors, even, who you do something they don't like, and then they're going to, you know, come down on you in some way, some manner of church discipline, because you don't do but they feel like you should be doing. But that's not what's going on here. It is a serious immoral sin. And he lists some more down in verse 11. And we'll get to here in a moment. This man 
was living. It's, it's, a, it's something of an ongoing thing in a continuous sexual relationship with either his stepmom, uh, it, it could be his mother, because that would be the wife of his father, but this is language used in Leviticus where you're told it's a sin to not only sleep with your mother, but then the next verse is a sin to sleep with your father's wife. So it would practically his mother was dead or they were divorced and his wife, his husband, his father is remarried, which is probably what's going on here. The thing that, that makes you wonder is because that these, this isn't named among the pagans. And of course in paganism there's a, there's a few things that are off limits, especially in that culture. But you know, again, exactly what's going on, it's icky enough, right? You know, if I can use that theological term. It's an icky nasty, filthy thing that's going on here that, that even the world in some way knows is not right. And in your arrogance, he says, you're allowing this to go on unchecked. So the, the sins that are that involve church discipline are continuous, unrepentant situations like that. And for the first four chapters, Paul has been dealing with the intellectual sins of the church. But, you know, the arrogance I can talk about. But this will always be worked out in the way we live. In other words, eventually, if there's, if there's some sort of sin in the way someone is thinking, eventually you're going to see this in their lives. It's going to be worked out. It's because sin is a matter of the heart. We, our bodies do what our, uh, minds, our, our inner person tells it to do. And it doesn't do anything that we don't want it to do. So they were proud of what they knew. And they're proud of their gifts, but it is assumed that instead of sound teaching that uh, will lead us to godliness, these must be the ones of whom Paul spoke of perhaps in Romans 5 and 6 when he says there are people who are sinning that grace may abound. There, let us sin that the Lord might forgive us. And perhaps that's what is going on here. They in their arrogance think that, well, you know, someone's sinning, but we live by grace, God God has an opportunity to forgive us. He's forgiven us of our sins. So, you know, it's just, it is completely unbiblical way of thinking. So their arrogance is not led to sound teaching, but to gross sin of dishonoring the Lord. They were proud that they could sin and give God more reasons to be gracious. After all, first, as we saw last week, they're ruling and blessed by God. He must be especially pleased with them. But let's look at some verses that deal with these subjects. Galatians 5.13 For you were called the freedom brothers. This is probably a, a reference primarily to the Mosaic Covenant that we're no longer under this for. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. You, you're, not, you're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. If you have been freed in Christ, which could be a reference to the fact that we've been freed from the dominion of sin, but in either case, you don't use freedom from the Mosaic law or freedom from the guilt and penalty of sin as an excuse to break God's law. No, it's an opportunity now to, to, to keep God's law in its fullest sense by love serving one another. Uh, Revelation 2.19 I know your works your love and faith and service, patient enduring, that your latter works exceed the first. So, 
the Lord saves us to help us to do to live lives that are not dominated by sin. And I think sleeping with your father's wife, you have to admit you you are being dominated by your sinfulness in one way or another. Uh, it goes on to say in verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaching, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food, sacrifice to idols. It very, this is a, both these issues are things that Paul would deal with in 1 Corinthians. So very, you're, you're teaching that it's okay to do this. Then uh, Ephesians 5, 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So instead of saying, well, look, I, you know, we're all human. Who are you to judge? No. God says there are some things, some sins, even covetousness. Someone who is living a greedy lifestyle, who is dishonoring the Lord in a public fashion, that kind of stuff shouldn't even be named among Christians. It just, it just shouldn't be part of, of, of who we are and how we're living if there are consequences if it is. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. How does that fit into judge not lest you be judged? When you are to expose certain things, when, when Christians aren't living, blatantly living contrary to their profession. I've heard pastors say that uh, professing couples in their church when, who are living in immorality, living together, for instance, without being married, and they're confronted about that, they'll say, we have no intention of stopping because God is going to forgive us anyway. Our sins are forgiven, so why should we stop? We love each other. Well, it can't be both ways. You either love God and want to please Him, or you love yourself and please yourself. And that couple and anyone who thinks that they don't need to stop sinning are fooling themselves as to their spiritual state. If you can actually say that and, th- and believe that it's okay for me to do these things. And, and one wonders what 1 Corinthians 5 means, if that's the case. If, it, if God doesn't care, He's going to forgive you anyway. I, I heard just a week or so ago a what I would call a false pa- a false pastor recently say in the context of this I don't know if any of you have heard about this I actually hadn't heard of it before but it's happening all the time there is a supposedly a beautiful actress who had the name I think her name was Ellen who was transitioned into a man and wants to be called Ellen because it happens all the time. So you're not surprised anymore, of course. And this false pastor says, listen, it doesn't cost you anything just to call him Ellen. Well, I would disagree with that. I would think it costs us quite a bit to live in the fantasy world that uh, she has created. It costs us our dignity. It costs us our truthfulness. It costs us, in a sense, our our sanity as a people to to say that which is not true. I am going to live in rebellion to God. And so and the idea behind what he's saying is look, just be loving. 
this is what she, this is how she wants to think of herself, to go along with it, and, and it's being loving. And if you don't go along with it, why well, you're being mean. But it's costing our biblical credibility. It, 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 I can no longer give her the gospel because she's not doing anything wrong. Because I'm not allowed to, to question anything she does. What does she have to be saved from? It's an attack upon Christianity and God himself. It costs us everything. It's costing churches everything to go along with this. And that's just one example, of course. So today, many churches refuse to discipline under the guise of humility. Who are we to point a finger? We don't want to be pharisaical, judgmental, or intolerant. And that removes any need of the gospel. And it's not thinking as God has told us to think. So here Paul says that it is their pride that is stopping them, not their arrogance, not it's their humility, and not it's not that they're humble by refusing to point out this person's sin. He says you're being arrogant. You're setting yourself above God for one thing. Their arrogance is causing tolerance. If they were humble, they would have excommunicating this person. And by the way, in this particular case, and not the only case, there are times when the excommunication is immediate. You don't take the time to seek for repentance, and if there's not repentance, then get rid of them. No, there are some sins where you have to break all ties with them for testimony's sake, and then work on their souls and restoration. Right? And I think we see, you know, Paul says, why has this person not been removed? I'll give you just one more example. We'll spend a lot of time with that. But if someone, you know, we learn that someone in the church is uh, has committed adultery or maybe uh, involved in sexual abuse, something like that, you, we're going to remove you immediately. We, we want there to be no question to anybody inside or outside the church that this is wrong and uh, it will not be tolerated. That That is... That is a serious issue. Right? So there are some things where you, you don't even take the time to examine it. You, you make it, you, you remove them, and then you seek to bring them back in, uh, if the Lord wills. And I'm just pointing that out. They should have been. Well, in verse 2 here, they uh, they should have been like Ezra and mourning over such things. When he says here, uh, you are arrogant, ought you not to have rather more? In other words, the fact that you guys don't see a problem with this and it hasn't broken you, you haven't, you haven't seen the sin and it's broken you before the Lord, you should have been like Ezra. I use Ezra, he, Paul didn't say this, but I'm using Ezra as an example. If you remember with Ezra, uh, Back when Israel had come back to the land and rebuilt the temple and they were trying to set up uh, sacrifices, well, the Levites, uh, a lot of the Levites, who were the only ones who could do the sacrifices and run the show in the temple, uh, many of them had, more, had married foreign women, which was completely contrary to the law and disqualified them from service. And Ezra says, what in the world is going on? And he said, look, get rid of them. In that situation, he says, divorce these women because that was clearly uh, contrary to the law and, you, and we can't have the temple services if you guys don't 
take care of this. He mourned over this thing. It offended him. The tolerance of today is because sin doesn't bother us. And there's only one reason why sin doesn't bother us. It's because we don't love Christ as we should. And, and, and even Christians can, can grow lax in these things because it's difficult for us to love as we should because of that remaining sin, right? But slice it any way you want to. This is where you must end up. Now, I'll add to that that preachers who have failed to teach, uh, one of the problems here is that preachers have failed to teach the pitfalls of sin as well. So we end up not doing anything often. But another thing is that preachers don't spend the time, if, you know, if you stand up here, and if I stand up here and I just, all I ever say is that adultery is wrong, lying is wrong, stealing is wrong, whatever. It's wrong, don't do it. You know, and all that kind of stuff. That is, in a sense, legalism. It's not that those things aren't true, but a faithful preacher also talks about why these God forbids these things, why they damage us, why they, they dishonor the Lord, why they bring problems into our life. There's good, healthy, joyful reasons why it is good for us not to dishonor the Lord, not to sin. Where would, where would we begin in chapter 5 of this man who is doing this sin? Where would we begin to point out the way this is ruining him? And, and ruining the one that you're involved with. It, 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 sin is detrimental. And so we want to always make sure that we don't just say this is wrong, this is right, but there's reasons why this is wrong. There's reasons why it's always a bad thing to not obey the Lord. And there's always good reasons why it's good to do what the Lord has us to do. He loves us. He gives us, as David said, he rejoiced in the law of God. He, the commandments of God were good. And so we always want to make sure that we point that out. It's good for two virgins to marry, to, to not have been with anybody else. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. Uh, it doesn't mean they can't have a good marriage. But there's just good reasons why you do things right the way God it is to save you from a lot of problems you don't have to have. And I'll just use that as an example. The next thing we see here is not just the reason for discipline, but the method of discipline. What exactly is to be done? And he says here, see this in verses 3 through 5 and verse 11, he was to be removed from the fellowship of the saints. Not just off the roll. Church discipline, when there is excommunication, it is not just saying, okay, uh, you're no longer uh, on our role, so go find you a church you can go to. No, because you're not, you shouldn't be going anywhere. Right? If, if we're saying you are, your conduct calls into question whether you're even saved, we're not sending them off to another church. Now, does that happen? Yeah, because people don't accept discipline to start with and just go find another church who doesn't investigate and care less. But what we're saying is, no, there's an issue here. We're removing you from our fellowship with the hope that, that will help will start the process of bringing you back into our fellowship. So it's not just taking you off the roll. It's, uh, it's, it's, we're, we're no longer going to fellowship with you as another Christian. It's, as we would another Christian. Notice here in Romans 
uh, 16, 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division. So there's a reason for excommunication. And create obstacles contrary to the doctrines you have been taught. So there's the doctrine, which is usually the obstacle of division. And avoid them. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in the court of the tradition that you have received from us, having the appearance of godliness and denying its power, avoid such people. Then goes on to say later, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. So you see here, this is not something where, well, I, I know they can pay out the church, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to uh, befriend them, and I'm gonna, you know, I, I don't want to be judgmental. Now let's be careful here, because the, the, the avoid them and all that is multi-layered. We're not to participate in their sin, certainly, but we are to make sure that they understand that we don't. We call into question whether they're even saved or not. And so we can no longer treat you, as we'll see here in Matthew. Well, let's finger. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. So that's the idea of avoidance. It doesn't mean you can't ever talk to them. But you're making sure they understand that things cannot be the same. There cannot be any fellowship now because we're... You're not living as a Christian. You claim to be a Christian and you're not living like that. So even if you're a family member, we have to in some way convey the fact that things aren't right. There's something wrong that, that, we, that they might be ashamed. They might understand that the church recognizes the problem here. In other words, this is important. And even if your mommy or son or daughter or whoever, uh, if they've been excommunicated, then we may have to make it clear that we can have no Christian fellowship with you. Paul says don't eat with them because in that culture, eating was a sign of fellowship. And it's a little bit like that in our culture. And again, I'm not saying that someone who's been put out of the church can never eat with them, but certainly not in a, let's just get together and have a good time. It would be maybe for a specific reason. And again, if it's family, you might not have any choice. But that doesn't mean you have fellowship with them, right? So I quote these verses so we don't get caught up in judge not lest you be judged. Either we love the Lord more than even our family members or we don't. Notice also that it is to be done publicly with the entire church. It doesn't say that the elders decide, you know, practice discipline, bring them before the church. But the church is the one who would ultimately decide these things. Sometimes elders, in order to keep things quiet, do this all kind of you know, behind the scenes. And, and thats uh, I don't see where that's helpful and not what the Bible seems to teach. So Jesus doesn't say if your family or a good, if it's a good friend of yours, you should continue to have a good relationship with them. No, uh, they need to understand that this is life and death. This is serious. <clears throat> so, he goes on to say, hand them over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, in 1 Timothy 1.20, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme, ultimately, for their good. 
in this case, if it's Paul, they, they discipline them, but Paul assumes that they're Christians. He thinks they are. And he's hoping that as they do this, and as he kind of gives them over to Satan, let, let them do their thing, at some point, it's going to bring them back to where they should be. Um, and, and again, what, well, what does that look like? It might be through disease or severe trial. It might even be death. Satan might destroy their flesh if the Lord allows that. But the Lord is not going to allow that one to bring down the name of Christ within the church. So while their testimony is ruined, the church then separates themselves from that reputation with the hope that there would be repentance before it would ever come to maybe the destruction of the flesh. Satan is sometimes used to be the means of sanctification. Remember, in, we'll see in 2 Corinthians 12, three times Paul prayed that this messenger of Satan, that, that this affliction would be removed from him. If Satan was, but the Lord didn't because he was using that in Paul's life. <clears throat> you know, in discipline, it is to let the effects of sin drive them to despair and repentance. You know, discipline is not just about punishment. Different, different discipline is about training, about instruction, about trying to build yourself up, right? It's maybe physical discipline. How often do those who go off into immorality or drugs or alcohol waste away in the flesh? Satan likes to make us miserable, but he tells us everything will be good, but it, it works to our misery. When the, Satan, when the church does what is right, the Lord will sometimes commission Satan to destroy the flesh and destroy that life in order to get that person back to where he belongs. And interestingly, we won't spend time there now, but Second Corinthians chapter two, verse uh, verses five to eleven. In that letter, Paul talks about how that this person has repented, and he makes sure that they now bring him back into the fellowship of the church. And so we see a good ending to this. It, it, discipline has, has worked out the way it was supposed to. Then, lastly, though, uh, try to move on here. Uh, the, re- the reason for discipline. It's not just the sake of the sinner. It's like in capital punishment. It might not work all, out all that well for the one who's murdered, but it's ultimately to save society, protect society, protect the victim, right? Capital punishment is a punishment, and, and it might mean the end of that person's life, but it might save others who that person might have murdered. And that's kind of what he says here. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We get rid of these people because if we allow them to continue, and, he, and that person's getting away with it, and that influence becomes, so other people fall into that sin. You let someone with, with, with heresy continue in the church, you can lead others into heresy, right? So it's for the purity of the church. And what we want to keep in mind is that Christianity is not just about forgiveness, but conforming us to the image of Christ. And many absolutely ignore this, it seems like. And so he points back to the celebration of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when for a week they were to remove all the leaven from their house. You remember this from Exodus. Uh, yeast, of course, permeates the bread, so it's a type of sin. And they were to go throughout their house and remove all the yeast. And when did they do that? Right after they celebrated Passover. Right after they were united to the Lamb of God, 
they started to analyze their lives and see how they could remove all yeast from their lives, right? It's a type of Christianity. So it serves as an illustration of our lifelong pursuit to remove that uh, in our lives that hinders us from glorifying the Lord. They were to search high and low for leaven. And the lesson for us is that we are to never make a truce with sin. Never say peace to things that dishonor Christ. And corporately, that means sometimes we've got to deal with it in church discipline. And how different from those who say that I will continue in sin, that, that God can love me and show grace to me and forgive me anyway. But we notice here, Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, uh, it has appeared in Jesus Christ, right? In the salvation of our uh, soul. And that grace has brought salvation for all people. And it doesn't just stop there. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So it's possible for us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. God did not send Jesus just to die for our sins. He sent him that we might be restored to people who love the Lord, who serve the Lord. And the Bible is very clear about that. So it's interesting. And we'll, and we'll stop here with a look at the, uh, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And finish this up next week. But it's interesting and extremely important to see how Paul brings the searching out for leaven into their houses, into the new covenant experience. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's showing the anti-type of the Passover. And so how do we conform our life to Christ? By being consumed with the cross. Right? Christ is our Passover. Uh, I wanted to read to you um, one thing. That uh, I read here that I thought was good, and then we'll, this will close. This is from David Brainer. He was a missionary in colonial days to the Indians in the Northeast, and then uh, of course they, they were the Indians, American Indians, were as pagan as you could be when we came over here and all that. And so he was a missionary to them because, like, you know, unfortunately many of the Europeans just saw the Indians as a nuisance and wanted to wipe them out. And David Brainerd realized, well, these are people who need Christ. So he spends his life, his short life, uh, as a missionary to them. But he said something I thought, well, this is good New Covenant theology. I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. That is, when dealing with the people. And I found that when my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as the sure and inevitable fruit of the other. I find my Indians beginning to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begin to be sanctified even in small matters when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and him crucified. Uh, well, that's kind of a good, I'm not really done here, but that's a good place to stop, because it just reminds us that 
the issue is not that you just need to learn to behave. We just need to learn to love Christ, to be thankful for what he's done for us, to be consumed with the cross. It's a difference between wanting to be holy and having to be holy. Loving rather than keeping the law. Do we have to be holy? Yes. But you won't be holy if you don't want to be holy, if it's not in your heart. And so today we don't keep the Old Testament festival as they did by getting rid of uh, the yeast, actual yeast, but we get rid of the unloving and ungodly practices and we follow hard after the word of God. We choose, or to choose impurity is to reject the work of the cross. And what Christian can do that? And those who want to do that and refuse to be corrected clearly must be removed from the church. But we will finish up with some of these thoughts for growing next week. Any questions or comments as we close?